Welcome to The Gradebook, a Tampa Bay Times podcast of Florida education issues. I'm reporter Jeff Solacek, and I'm here with Tom Tobin, and it is May 19th, and we got the surprise today, Tom, didn't we? Yes, we did, and uh, we've been surprised uh, uh, all week, actually. It's been a busy uh, news week in education, but today especially busy. Third grade reading test results out today. And uh, Jeff, what do they what do they tell us? Is there anything uh, new about or anything in particular we should focus this year uh, on on these results? Well, like every other year, what we try to focus on these results for is the percentage of students that are getting to be moving on to fourth grade. This is one of our only gatekeeper tests that we have in Florida. The third graders take a reading test every spring, and if they score a level one out of five, level one is the lowest. They, they stand the opportunity, I'll call it an opportunity, maybe it'd be better called a threat to them, to be retained and to have to repeat the, four, the third grade and not move on to fourth grade. And, and people freak out about it. There's been a lawsuit about it, as we've talked about in the past. But these results come out early, so that way the schools can know, the kids can know, and everybody can know before classes end, which is next week for most of them. This year, we had a lower percentage of kids at level one than we've had in the past couple of years. We went down to 19%, which is still a high number. We're talking about 43,000 some odd kids, but that's down from 22% a year ago, which means that we have more kids or a higher percentage anyway that are doing better on the test and don't have to even try and get an exemption for good cause, which are available if their schools and their principals and teachers agree. Right, and we, uh, if you look at the state as a whole, uh, that 19%, that's uh, 43,000 kids um, who face the, you know, the prospect of being held back unless they can get that exemption. Um, we, in the Tampa Bay area, we've been looking at uh, uh, particular schools that we've been following uh, uh, in, in recent months uh, in uh, Hillsborough, in Pinellas County, and in Pasco County, especially, um, have you seen what? It looks like a mixed bag, Jeff, as we look at the numbers in terms of the what they did in their third grades at these schools. It really is a mixed bag. I, I've seen some of the schools that you know we called the failure factories in Pinellas County that showed some good improvements and don't look like they're they're going to have as many problems going forward. It looks like they may have found some solutions to some of their problems. The same is true for those schools that we call Elevate in Hillsborough County. And in Pasco County, those turnaround schools, there were three or four of them that are also seeing some degrees of improvement. For instance, at these Pasco schools, I've seen some schools that show an increase in students at level two, which means that they've moved out of level one, where they've seen a decrease in that percentage. But it doesn't mean that every school is doing equally well. There were some schools in Hillsborough County, for instance, that saw some decreases in their performance overall. And that's where a lot of attention is going to be paid. The state really looks closely at these results and they demand changes if you don't see improvement pretty soon. And they usually give schools about two years to make improvements, which is, some say, way too little time. But 
Um, that's where it is right now. And so they're, they're going to be pouring over their numbers very closely. And, and the larger picture is we're just coming off a, a legislative session where some of this was discussed. Certainly accountability uh, was discussed and whether the state should uh, amend its accountability system. Uh, this particular piece was discussed, but only in a minor way and really never went anywhere, uh, the, the third grade retention piece. Um, it just, uh, uh, nothing happened with that particular legislation. So um, this 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 uh, third grade retention is going to be with us uh, for a while, and uh, I guess uh, we it's been with us uh, many years up to now. That's right. It came from Jeb Bush, which basically puts us out more than fifteen years at this point, which is kind of crazy to think about. And I remember writing from the very beginning year of third grade retention based on reading tests about stressed out kids, upset parents, schools trying to find ways to either you know, make the kids feel better, find a way for them to prove that they really were capable and sometimes having to hold them back. They've had to start those summer reading camps that they've been going on for a long time now. They run anywhere from three to six weeks where they bring the the kids in and sometimes the younger kids too in order to get them caught up before they even fall behind and take that third grade test. Um, but now this year, you know, we had the, or actually, I guess it was last year already. This school year, we've had the the lawsuit based on the parents who did not think that their kids should be held back simply on the score of their test, or in some cases, the not having a score on their test. That lawsuit got turned down in an appeals court, and it's still hovering on a venue issue in the Florida Supreme Court if they decide to take it up. But it doesn't seem to be going anywhere anytime soon, and these kids are just now finishing up their tests. On everything else, the rest of the results should be out soon. But these third graders, now they will be knowing their principals and their teachers are calling their parents probably today. Yeah. And we'll look for the uh, results uh, through the next few weeks. Those should be interesting. As followed by school grades, those should be interesting uh, in light of all the discussion that has gone on. Um, let's pivot to uh, something else that's interesting. Um, the uh, discussions about uh, uh, veto talk up in Tallahassee surrounding this year's uh, state education budget and the, also the big uh, budget, uh, the, the big education policy bill. Will he or won't he? Governor Rick Scott, will he veto? Will he not veto? Have you heard anything, Jeff, about do any, um, is anyone predicting what may happen? There are predictions to go around and there's lots of pressure to go around as well. Last week, we talked about it just in the beginning stages with the hashtag yes on 7069 and veto 7069. It's become a full onslaught. Every organization and association related to schools and education from the PTA to the school boards to the other school boards association, the charter school groups, they're all weighing in. And the governor is hearing loud and clear from both sides. Uh, The thing that's really most interesting to me was a story that just came out today. Kristen Clark, who works in our Tallahassee office, wrote about what the governor released as the information that he's receiving, the feedback he's receiving. And it talks about uh, basically almost a nine to one against. They want him to veto the bill and probably also the budget for the education funding plan, which is what lots of groups have called for. No, I was going to ask you about that. I was interested in, have you, do you see the, the, are the voices equally loud on both sides, or is there one side or the other that's kind of dominating the discussion? And you, just, you just kind of address that. Are these, are these 
there's nine to one. Are these stakeholders or, or members of the general members members of the general public? Who are they? Well, it's interesting, and I'm again going off of Kristen's reporting because she went through the governor's um, communications as it was re- released by the governor's office, and it shows there as of Thursday evening they had about thirty. 700 emails in opposition compared to 423 in support, 1,100 phone calls in opposition compared to 330 in support, and 63 letters in favor compared to 38 against. However, she also points out that there are some groups that haven't been accounted for yet, and when they saw this story come out, they're the ones that are supporting the Gardner Scholarships, the charter schools, and other pieces of the legislation that that they like, that thousands of parents who supposedly have logged in on that other side, the social media again started coming up saying like, baloney, that's not true. That's not a full picture. That's not the right thing. But the fact that the governor's office released these numbers and didn't talk about the others was just kind of interesting to me because maybe they're showing their hand that way. Maybe they're signaling like, hey, we're getting all this opposition. And there's been a lot of predictions, even among the charter school supporters, that he will veto the bill, and maybe even the funding part of the budget. I saw a column this week that, that uh, talked about that possible eventuality, and, and it, it made the point that uh, you know if he were to uh, veto the, the education policy bill, he would find himself sort of oddly aligned with um, Democrats who, who uh, also oppose a lot of the, uh, the, the charter legislation, and uh, that puts him in a, in a strange uh, position politically. Yeah, you might remember that when Charlie Crist vetoed Senate Bill 6 a few years back, he found himself with the support of the Democrats, and he was getting ready to run against Marco Rubio. And, well, he got their support, at least for a while, but it didn't really do him much good. I don't know how many Democrats will really vote for Rick Scott when it comes down to a Senate race against Bill Nelson, if and when it comes to that point. But it's part of the calculus. Maybe even if he can peel off 10 or 20% of them, that would be useful in any sort of bid that he launches. Is most of the noise on social media regarding uh, 7069, or is it the budget, or is it equal parts, uh, everything? It started off mostly on the bill, 7069, because there's a lot of stuff in there, and there are a lot of different interest groups. Recess is in there. Sunscreen is in there. Testing is in there. Charter schools are in there. So there's a lot in there for people to want to talk about, and so... That's where the drumbeat really has been steadily picking up and all the school boards and school board associations and so forth have been talking about that. Then the school board association came out and said, veto the funding plan as well, the FEFP. And then other people started to say, hey, yeah, that too. And so it started to grow again. Meanwhile, the governor hasn't received either the budget or the bill. And so he can talk and think as long as he wants There's been speculation about why he hasn't received it. Maybe they're trying to just hold out until the effective date, giving him little time to make a decision when he finally gets the bill, because July 1st is the effective date. Uh, Who knows? And trying to guess is it's like a parlor game, like when people tried to figure out who would take over. If if Alberto Carvalho was going to run for Congress, which he's decided he's not, who would be the next Miami-Dade superintendent? So, you know. So they could wait until June 30th on this to give the governor the budget and, and pretty much narrow his options that way. That's pretty that's pretty brass knuckles politics right there. That happened. Well, I mean, at least this way, everybody's been lobbying him ahead of time. If he hasn't thought of what he's going to do in that eventuality, then 
that would not be very thoughtful of him, I would guess. Obviously, he's talking about it. Other people are talking about it. So he may just put out a message ahead of time saying, like, when you send me this, this is what I'm going to do. Well, one of the uh, one of the pieces of legislation hanging in the balance uh, here is uh, in, in in this uh, what we're talking about in the veto is is the bright futures uh, legislation, the uh, effort to uh, sweeten the pot, as it were, for uh, the top scholars who uh, uh, qualify for the bright futures scholarship. Uh, the scholarship turned twenty uh, years old uh, this year, and uh, we uh, are our very busy higher education reporter, Claire McNeil. Uh, has spent uh, a good deal of time this spring uh, reporting on Bright Futures, and I talked to her about that. Let's listen. Well, hi, Claire. Thanks for talking to us today. Hi. Happy to be here. Great. So you you spent part of your spring uh, getting to know all you could about Florida's Bright Futures Scholarship Program, which turns 20 years old this year. Hard to believe. Yeah, it's uh, it's got a long, uh, very complicated history, but I had a lot of fun going back through the archives and talking to lawmakers, experts, all kinds of people about the program and its um, many effects on the state. You wrote a story uh, that's appearing this week in the Tampa Bay Times and on tampabay.com that takes a a broad look at the program. Uh, Of course, this was in connection with some major legislation that seeks to enhance the bright futures for many, but not all students. And we all know that now, by now, it ended up being part of a a budget bill that may or may not be signed by Governor Scott. Yeah, we will wait and see. Yeah, what does the legislation do? Well, uh, basically what they did was they wanted to restore some of the original appeal of the program. So when Bright Futures first launched, it uh, covered, it had amazing awards for students. If you were an A student, we're talking 100% tuition and fees to a Florida university. If you were a B-level student, about three quarters. So really a significant amount of money. Uh, over the years, those amounts changed. And um, uh, what the lawmakers are now hoping to do is restore those original top tier awards for, for the A-level students. So we'd go back to 100% tuition and fees, which is really for Florida families trying to pay tuition bills, a pretty amazing investment. Right, and and how did, what uh, what led to it eroding over time? That that initial award was so uh, beneficial to so many families, and then it uh, then it dropped off. What happened? Well, over time, enrollments expanded dramatically in Florida. Bright Futures was actually achieving the goals it set out to achieve, keeping students in state and uh, pushing them to attend universities here. Uh, so all those things were great, um, but lawmakers started to be really concerned about how much it was costing. About a third of high schoolers were were getting the merit program uh, dollars, which is a huge, huge amount of money. So um, they kept trying to change it, and voters kept pushing back. And eventually, when the recession hit, it uh, was enough of a strain on the program that lawmakers finally made cuts. So they did two things. They reduced the amount of the award so that uh, students were not getting that huge, huge package. Um, and they made it harder to get the program overall, uh, which ended up cutting out a lot of students. Now only about 12% of the state's uh, graduating seniors will get Bright Futures. Wow, wow. 
And, uh, so, you know, while lots of uh, students have benefited over the years, the reality is that many have, have criticized Bright Future as not nearly as inclusive as it should be. Who, who are the parties that are complaining and, and what's, their, what's their argument? A lot of the folks who are complaining are the same kinds of people who raise concerns about testing uh, fairness. Um, socioeconomic status is a huge player in how students perform on standardized testing. And to get bright features, you have to get a pretty great, um, to get that top level for full tuition, uh, you have to get a pretty great SAT score. So uh, the critics say that um, what, what you see happening is the people who get bright futures, the students who get it, are traditionally from more affluent white families who have the resources to go out and do test preparation, who are statistically much more likely to go to college and graduate anyway. So you'll see a lot of um, lawmakers, uh, mostly Democrats, um, and then uh, folks who are concerned about testing fairness, who speak out against bright futures and merit programs like this that they feel just reinforce privilege and um, are rewarding students who grew up with all these uh, extra resources instead of helping needier students who would really benefit from some extra money to get them to go to college and finish their degree. So let's, let's talk some hard numbers here. Uh, how many students would be impacted if Governor Scott did sign this bill and the legislation went through with uh, those enhanced benefits for the top scholars? How many, were, how many kids were we talking about? Every year, about 40,000 students qualify for the top level. So to get that, it's about a 3.5 GPA, a 1290 SAT, or a 29 ACT, and 100 volunteer hours. So if, let's say you're a Florida parent, and your kid is um, really uh, looking like they're going to hit those numbers, you really want them to, to hit that top category because from now on that means your tuition bill is going to be uh, zero, which is um, amazing when you're looking at the average cost of tuition and fees in Florida, which is about $6,000 a year. So, Claire, in the other category of students, the next tier down, how many uh, students are we talking uh, that, that did not are not part of this legislation and won't get an enhanced benefit uh, next year if this is signed? It's actually a broader pool than, than the top level. Uh, the B-level students are about 70000 per year. So they will keep getting the same award that they've been getting, which is about uh, a little more than $2,000 um, which makes a dent in tuition, but if you're a family paying that bill, it's still going to add up pretty quickly. All right, great. Uh, well, again, your story appears in TampaBay.com and in the Tampa Bay Times on Sunday. Uh, thanks for filling us in, Claire. We really appreciate it. Thanks. I had a lot of fun digging into the program. That's a really interesting conversation you had with Claire. I know that there are a lot of people who will be waiting to find out if they can get more money to support them for their college and university careers. A lot of people is right. You heard in our discussion, uh, 70,000 uh, uh, students who, who won't be affected uh, because they're in that second tier, and then more than 40,000 who will be. So a lot of families, uh, Bright Futures definitely factors into that big college decision. So now it's time for us to talk about something smaller. We've talked about some pretty big things. We usually end the, the podcast with, you know, a little something. So, Tom, what, what have you been looking at that di that didn't escape your radar but didn't make the the big the big talk. Sure. I, uh, I, every year I have, as education editor, I have the pleasure of uh, pulling together uh, profiles and, uh, of all of uh, the local 
students here who are valedictorians and salutatorians from our private and uh, public high schools here in uh, Pinellas County. And uh, one thing I noticed going through, we ask you know different questions, how they feel and, uh, and uh, how they got through high school. And um, it's always great to hear the comments of uh, young people. But one thing I noticed um, uh, was the, uh, that most of them are, uh, many of them are going to the University of Florida. Uh, Florida's uh, flagship university, and uh, you know, back on the topic of bright futures, I, you know, a lot of students in past years, I think, um, I noticed 15 years ago, were going to out of state to uh, top name schools out of state, and now many of them uh, are going to UF or uh, FSU and uh, also UCF and, and other schools. That, that that bright futures has really changed that that, that calculus. Well, it's amazing that they can get in. I understand that the acceptance rate is really hard and that isn't the, the GPA for UF for an average of like 4.4? It's 4.4. Yes, it is. And in the, in the, I forget the exact uh, SAT score, but that's pretty high too. Uh, it's a high bar. And the, and the alumni, uh, some alumni joke now that, you know, that, that graduated uh, 15, 20 years ago, they say, I, I wouldn't be able to get in there now. Um, so... Uh, yeah, it's uh, and and you, it really hits home when you when you work uh, with these valedictorians and salutatorians who are, are graduating uh, this year. I, you also noticed it last year, uh, and um, so it's uh, it's an interesting phenomenon, and it, I think it will continue with this new legislation if it uh, survives the governor's veto. Now, uh, and and Jeff, do you have anything that you noticed this week? Well, yeah, Tom. I- there's there's a lot of interesting stories coming out and that didn't have anything to do with the the house bill and the budget and and I've been trying to get through them all because they're just they're all really interesting and the thing that stood out to me this week was uh, a story out of Martin County. They had the same kind of issue that Hillsborough County had and others have not being able to afford courtesy busing anymore because that is mon- that, those are bus rides to kids who live within 2 miles of their school and aren't paid for by the state because they have no hazardous walking conditions or anything like that. A lot of school districts are trying to get rid of those because they're a cost drain in a time when budgets are tight. The Martin County School District decided that they may have some seats open on some of those buses that are driving straight past those kids' homes, even though they're within that two-mile radius. And so they're going to charge them $425 to buy a seat on those buses for the year. And, you know, those that raises a lot of questions about whether that's there's any equity in that, because, you know, if you're driving through a wealthier neighborhood, you obviously have more likelihood of a kid buying a $425 seat than if you're driving through a less wealthy neighborhood where maybe they can't afford that. But it's still the same 1.8 miles in the dark, in the rain on the way to school. It just caught my attention. And I and I and I wonder how many school districts will be approaching it from this perspective or if they'll just simply do away with the bus rides altogether as as others are doing or or if there's some other solution maybe a cheaper one that they might be able to approach yeah someone should tell hillsborough county about that that uh, that would that would make an interesting interesting fodder for uh, a de- uh, debate on the school board here i'm pretty sure that they'll read the story soon and and they'll probably get around to discussing it because these things don't escape each other, you know, one district discusses it and it gets around pretty fast. So maybe we will have some fun discussions here locally. And of course, transportation is a huge item in the budget. And uh, as we see, there's a lot of districts talking about the budget that was just approved. And 
they don't uh, think, think too much of it. It's a, in their minds, it was uh, uh, meager, especially in the in, in some rural counties here. So, but that's a discussion uh, for another day as the uh, as the governor tackles the question. Exactly. And on that note, if you want to participate in this conversation or any of the others that we've had during this um, podcast or anything else, visit our Facebook page, Tampa Bay Times Gradebook. You can follow our breaking news on our blog, tampabay.com slash gradebook. I'm reporter Jeff Solichek. And I'm editor Tom Tobin. Thanks for listening.